Well, here we are at the end of chapter one in Jonah, and boy, do I have a whale of a tale for you. Okay, I'm a dad. You knew that was coming. Would you read with me our verse at the end of chapter one, Jonah one seventeen? Jonah one seventeen. And Yahweh appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. That's our verse for this morning. Well, when I told my boys that I had the privilege to preach on verse 17 and told them what it was about, my nine-year-old most innocently asked whether the story really happened. And I said, yes, of course. The Holy Spirit wrote it. Jesus said it happened. And that resolved the matter for my nine-year-old. But many professing believers have struggled, just absolutely struggled to make sense of this unparalleled fish story. And it's become a stumbling block that once a person has fallen into believing that it might not be true, can cast doubt on almost anything that's written in Scripture that seems at first glance a bit improbable. And I would guess that many of us who are here in this room can identify somebody in our life that cannot or will not accept this very verse as being a true account. And so this one verse plays into a host of deeper issues that question ultimately the authority of Scripture. Can the writer of Scripture be trusted as an authority figure to tell us what we can believe and that what is actually written is actually what we must believe, even if it seems a bit improbable at first glance. Is the Bible the best authority on this and other matters? And what about other odd phenomena that happen in Scripture? It's not a far descent for somebody that's already fallen into disbelief on Jonah 1.17, into doubting the second person of the Trinity could be born by a virgin. And what else might we add to that list of doubts for one who does not see the authority of Scripture the way they should from the Holy Spirit himself? So Scripture does present certain incomprehensible truths that we need to accept just in the way that they're written. And we shouldn't just accept those concepts that we can theologically make sense of, but we need to believe everything That is in God's word. Every word of God's word is God's word. Now, as far as the fish story is concerned, if a person doesn't believe it's true, then he's going to have to come up with an alternative explanation. But there really is no good alternative to what we read here. Some years ago, when Pastor John preached on Jonah, he recounted a few of the ways that the verse gets interpreted by those who doubt the authority of the text. You might remember some of the things that he said. We might have even talked about them in the comings and goings of chapter 1. A couple of them are that Jonah actually did make it to land, uh, but without the help of a fish, and he stayed three days and three nights at an inn called the whale. All right. (laughs) Yeah, now doesn't that sound preposterous? Now, another one is that Jonah fell overboard right onto a whale carcass and just floated on it for about three days and three nights. Um, or another was that Jonah was pushed out from the, fit, uh, the, the boat, which was called the Great Fish, onto a dinghy that was just trailing along behind it. So he was as if he was riding inside the Great Fish uh, on the sea. 
Well, we chuckle at all the time and energy that goes into concocting such a cockamamie story. Um, These interpretations come from rationalists, those anti-supernaturalists. It's a big term for an easy problem for people to fall into. They would be anti-supernatural against any concept of a miracle showing up in this account. And there have been more recent attempts from an anti-supernaturalist, rationalist perspective to make some sense of this. And they just come right out of the headlines. Uh, I don't know if you knew back uh, this last summer there was a diver in Boston that he was, uh, he was trapped in the mouth of a humpback whale for about 30 to 40 seconds before it breached and it spewed him out. So can we use that? as kind of the launching pad into doubt over this miracle. Some might want to do that. You might also recall seeing footage from several years ago about an Italian puppet maker that survived inside of a whale that was affectionately named Monstro. I know, it seems like cartoonish fantasy. uh, I've got some boys here that might know about that story. Well, what we can say is that no whale tale has ever been told that matches the incredible miracle that we read about here in verse 17. No other interpretation than a straight-up supernatural event can do justice to what happened to Jonah. Our verse raises a host of images and ideas, and the best way to parse through this tiny little verse in two parts is to raise questions, matters that, uh, that relate to this verse so that we can try and understand it. So we would do well to focus our attention on this last verse uh, by raising different kinds of questions and see what kind of lessons, even personal lessons, can come out of it for us today. So let's approach the text by asking questions. We're going to ask these questions uh, along two uh, bracketed topics, two major topics. And the first topic, uh, and this will serve as our outline, is Jonah's salvation. Questions related to Jonah's salvation. The next would be Jonah's sign. Questions related to Jonah's sign, the sign of Jonah. Well, first, let's start with questions that lead us to understand Jonah's salvation right here in our verse. And it's the first part. Uh, And Yahweh appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. The first question is this. How is salvation developed at this point in the narrative? How is salvation developed at this point in the narrative that will help us understand Jonah's salvation here in verse 17? Well, up till now in chapter 1 of Jonah, we've seen how Yahweh has proven to be a great savior toward the pagan idolaters on the boat who turned to him in faith when they were at their most desperate moment. We remember this. And right from the top of the chapter, we learn that God is giving the Ninevites, other pagan idolaters on land, a chance to seek him too. And he commissioned Jonah to go on land to preach to them. But verse 17 reveals that God doesn't just save the sailors on his way to save the Ninevites. You don't just go from point A to point B without seeing God's salvation of Jonah. A real needy deliverance of Jonah right here. And so we can say, without a doubt, when we talk about Jonah's salvation showing up in verse 17, we're talking about a deliverance of the prophet. And Yahweh acts as a savior to this wayward prophet also, on his way to point B. Well, the second question that comes up, it's not just how does salvation develop, but how does God actually save Jonah in this 
instance? How does God save Jonah in this instance? So for the second question, we can look at it from this perspective. We've already seen how kind Yahweh is to go send the captain to wake up Jonah earlier in the story um, so that he'll actually act as the prophet that he was initially called to be toward the Assyrians. And once Jonah then goes to the upper deck and he testifies to the sailors, what does he do? He says he's ready to die. As if his conscience can say he's completely fulfilled in his mission. Just throw me overboard. Well, he's not quite done with his mission. Jonah goes overboard, all right, but God isn't done with him. He doesn't say, well, I'll raise up another prophet, or I'll find some other way to go preach to the Ninevites, or, uh, well, I guess that's it for the Ninevites. Uh, No, he rescues Jonah in order to keep him on track with his calling. The text says, and this is how we can answer this question about the salvific act in verse 17, it's what it says, Yahweh appointed a great fish. Well, the word fish here is generic in the Hebrew language. Maybe it was a whale, but it really could have been anything. And Jesus, in Matthew 12, 40, calls it a sea monster. Well, Yahweh could have summoned up any great fish beast to snatch up Jonah while he was sinking to the bottom of the sea. Notice that Jonah's deliverance isn't by chance, and it's definitely a freaky event, but it wasn't a freak coincidence, because he survived the depths because God appointed this great fish to go and swallow him. Notice what the text says, Yahweh appointed the fish. That's the translation that we're rendering. And what does he appoint him to do? Is to swim right up at the perfect moment, perhaps as Jonah is letting out his very last breath, and the idea of appointing then becomes very crucial for us understanding the deliverance that Yahweh gives to the prophet. To appoint, in a Hebrew sense, is very specific. It means to count on or to count out, to number, to order carefully with meticulous scrutiny, with careful planning, so that all the details come together to accomplish the master plan. That is to a point. And so it was for Jonah. At the most critical moment, with his head tangled in seaweed, engulfed to the point of death, as we read about at the beginning of the next chapter, in that moment, Yahweh sent this unique animal with a wide enough mouth and a large enough belly to hold a man to snatch him up so that he wouldn't drown. Well, this might seem a little odd to some, but this has happened to me a few times where uh, a neighbor had caught a tuna for us off of Catalina on a, on a day when nobody else was catching, and it was delivered. Finally, we got it to our plate. And I don't know if this has happened to you, but have you ever prayed at mealtime with thanksgiving for the thousand critical details that God orchestrated, appointing so that you would have delivered on your plate that amazing providence from God? Think about it as you sit and you eat today. Every detail has been ordered and timed by God so that what is placed before you and is provided for your sustenance and for your pleasure was appointed by God, scrutinized in every detail, and landed where it landed. Now take that back to this idea. How much more should we, with sheer awe at this situation, Look at God's sovereign control to to hatch 
to raise, to direct, and steer the will of a very unique fish right toward Jonah's exact location, right in that crucial moment to save his life by swallowing him. That is God's appointment. So praise Yahweh for this great appointment of a great fish. This is a truly unworthy man, and so you can see God's grace in it, can't you? Interestingly, it's the fish that submits to Yahweh in order to save a man who at that time has no desire to submit to Yahweh. Well, this leads us to question three about Jonah's salvation. How does the description of the fish connect with other works of God's salvation in chapter 1? How does the description of the fish connect with other works of God's salvation in chapter 1? Well, for one thing, the fish is described how? As a great fish. And it gives us a sense of its enormity. It was big enough to swallow and store a man inside it without itself even dying. Uh, This is unusual. This... This is unheard of, unparalleled, but theologically we can look at its great size and see behind this great fish an even greater God. A great deliverance like this can only come from a great God who is the deliverer. In fact, the term great is used throughout chapter 1 so that we will behold massive things like this fish. But we will always, always see God supreme over these massive things. Verse 2, who's greater than the great city of Nineveh? Yahweh the Savior is. Verse 4, who's greater than the great storm? Yahweh the Savior is. And now here in verse 17, who's greater than this great fish? Yahweh the Savior is. Now there's a sense of irony as you stack up these adjectives of great In chapter 1, Yahweh, this great Savior, proves himself to be great in his salvation. But there's one person who doesn't want Yahweh to achieve a great salvation with anybody, whether to the Ninevites in their city or to the sailors in their great storm or even to himself in his great distress. Just throw me overboard. Man, Jonah. Do you see that? God is a great Savior. He's a gracious Savior, and he shows his compassion and his mercy to the most unlovable, whether the Ninevites or those old salts or to Jonah himself, this wayward prophet. Well, that's an irony that ultimately doesn't make us laugh. It should instead bring us to tears. That's an irony that shows us the resolute compassion of God. There are wayward, disobedient believers who have long stopped caring about the things of God. And they are ultimately at their wit's end. They are desperate. And yet, this God has a resolute compassion. He hasn't stopped caring about Jonah. And that's, that's a grace you can't buy. Now, a fourth question emerges regarding Jonah's salvation. And it's this, what makes the miracle of being swallowed by the fish particularly miraculous? 
I mean, we know that it's a unique situation, but what makes being swallowed by this great fish particularly miraculous? Well, the obvious fact is that nothing like this has happened before, nor could anything like this happen through natural means. We, we haven't at least seen it, but to not make an argument from silence, we do recognize from the situation here that God's providence to Jonah is supernatural. It is absolutely a powerful work that only God could could accomplish. And part of how we know that is the fact that Jonah was swallowed. Okay, this term swallowed is helpful at exactly how you would expect it. It means he wasn't eaten exactly, he wasn't chewed up, and he wasn't digested. I know that's gross. But, you know, this this fish swallowed Jonah hook, line, and sinker. But Jonah didn't do, or but the fish didn't do what any fish would naturally do, which is to eat what it swallows. Especially being in there for as long as he was, right? You might catch a fish and still find the bait intact inside, but in the mouth or something. But we're talking a long period of physiological process that's supposed to be happening in this fish now that something's in his belly. So part of the miracle is that by swallowing Jonah and not chewing him up and digesting him, is that through that fish, Jonah can stay alive. That is part of God's salvation, is being swallowed. Interesting. Well, the second aspect of the miracle is captured in the next phrase of verse 17. So we're going to treat it under our second theme on how Jonah's miracle serves as a sign for everyone to see. So let's move into the second batch of questions that key off of the second part of the verse. And these are questions that have to do with Jonah's miracle and how it serves as a sign. We know that he's saved, but here's the second half of verse 17. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Well, I'm using the term sign for this section of the verse, even though it doesn't appear there. Because I'm referencing how Jesus talks about this event. I mentioned before Matthew 12. If you, um, and we'll look at it in a moment. You might get your thumb ready for it. But Matthew 12, 39 to 41, Jesus references the sign of Jonah. And what we want to understand at the end of this is what that sign is and how it functions. But first, we need to understand how that sign is meant to be understood in our context of Jonah, and then we can apply it forward to Matthew 12. So the first question about how Jonah's being swallowed in the stomach of the fish for three days and three nights serves as a sign uh, is, is this. How did Jonah being in the stomach of the fish serve as a sign? How does Jonah being in the stomach specifically of the fish serve as a sign? Well, If being swallowed whole is that first aspect of this fish miracle that we were looking at, then the second aspect is that he was able to survive in the stomach of the fish for so long. Uh, How did he breathe in there? How did he receive a regular flow of oxygen in the stomach of this fish? And on top of that, it seems that God has miraculously protected him from being consumed by the gastric juices. I know, that's terribly gross. We've gone too far. But we're, we're here with Jonah in the stomach of the fish, and there's some questions that come up. I, mean, I want to know how he could survive not being digested when everything else that's in his mouth would just naturally have gone that 
direction because of the gastric juices themselves. Well, we don't know anything about this fish beast's anatomy, and I, I, I grant that. But at least we can say he's in the stomach. And if we look at any great uh, aquatic animal, what we can say is that's going to be a tight space. He, <laughs> he's not moving in there. At least we can say that. Now, you might not have thought about the belly of the fish being a particular sign of Jonah, but it is a sign that points to the sovereignty of God. And so there is much that we can learn from this term stomach. So let's talk about the Hebrew term for stomach, because, hey, we're there. Well, uh, it's used sometimes in the prophets to talk about a deep place within a person. You could imagine that, um, the stomach being a deep place, the, the center of a person, that deep center. And Jonah definitely is in the deep center of the fish. And so it's there that we see him experiencing the sovereign control of God. How so? Well, he's in the deep part of the fish, he's breathing oxygen, and he's not drowning in water outside of the fish. That's one thing. And he's not being digested. On the other hand, he's held fast, he's immovable, he's ultimately impervious to any danger and impervious to himself. And that's all compared to the sea around him and all of the dangers that would be there in the deeps. He's in the, actually in the safest place that he could be. If you think about it, I mean, we don't like to think about that, but do you see the sovereign control of God over Jonah by putting him in the fish's stomach? Well, conceptually, being in the fish's stomach signals something else about God's sovereignty than just protection. And let me ask you this. Do you remember how when Jonah was trying to flee from Yahweh, he went as far away from him as he could possibly go in the opposite direction? Uh, recall what we have learned from chapter 1. He didn't go from Israel inland up to the Assyrian city of Nineveh. He went west toward the sea, opposite direction. He traveled then by boat in the direction of the furthest location that he could possibly get himself to, Tarshish, which could be many places, but we think it's possibly Spain. Well, when he was outwist, as far away from God as he can possibly get in the ship itself. Well, beyond that, then he asks to be thrown overboard. He is hurled overboard and he sinks to the lowest part, to the depths of the sea, down to the roots of the seaweed. It says the roots of the mountains, to the lowest parts of the earth. These are uh, depictions that come out in his prayer in chapter 2 that we'll get to soon in our sermon series. And in each of these deep and far locations, Jonah is just simply trying to run from God. But the running is over. There's just one more depth, though, that he's going to sink to at the end of chapter 1. And where is that? Into the deepest part of this great fish. You see, into his stomach. And so uh, what should this new depth for Jonah signal to us conceptually? Well, it shows how Jonah was placed into this most, what we would consider terrifying and frankly disgusting depth by God himself, not by fleeing there. Jonah didn't flee to this farther depth. God appointed a fish to swallow him and put him there. You see the difference? Jonah isn't this low at 
his, now his absolute lowest in the stomach of a fish by his own scheming. Because God is overcoming all of his scheming and he's the one laying the prophet low, isn't he? He's the one that has put Jonah into a constricted but safe place. All of this is by divine appointment. Now in the stomach of the fish, Jonah really has to reckon with the fact that God has appointed him to be there. This is unmistakable. And it's there in that deep place that Jonah will truly see that God has delivered him. God is protecting him. God is sustaining him. This is the end of his fleeing. Well, you can take the term stomach one step further in order to see yet more of God's sovereign control and how this then becomes a sign of God's sovereign power. The term stomach can be used, it's rare, but it can be used as a womb. And so it doesn't take much imagining in this concept to see that for Jonah, being in the belly of the fish means now he is at a constricted place where he's actually given opportunity to rest. And where he rests is, in his case, where he will repent. And where he repents, he will grow. And he will, in that womb, as it were, he will develop into the prophet that God has called him to be. And then, when he comes out of that conceptual womb, then it's go time. Now it's time to, stra- to strengthen his legs and do that activity of evangelism. So, how does being in the stomach of the fish serve as a sign? Well, it shows the sovereignty of God to overpower a rebel. Shows God's sovereign power to rescue this rebel and to grant to this rebel rest from his running. That deep part of the fish became an intimate space for Jonah to meet with God. Fascinating. So helpful to see that. It's there in the stomach of the fish that God gives grace to that wayward believer. Now, a second question about how being in the stomach of the fish for uh, three days and three nights serves as a sign is the second question on this is, why did Yahweh appoint a fish to rescue Jonah rather than something or some, someone else? Why did he need to be rescued by a fish? Now, you might be surprised to know, and, and this might be new for some of you, that the Ninevites worshipped a fish god. Did you know that? Yeah. Now, he had the head of a fish, body of a man, kind of like an inverted merman. But just imagine how Jonah will get to this Assyrian capital city and be able to proclaim that God is sovereign over everything, even from where he came from, just now. Well, the Assyrians consider this fish god of theirs to be supreme, and certainly uh, this fish god would have been capable of having his great fish, his envoy, gobble up their enemy. And who would that be? In this case, it would be Yahweh's envoy, this Jewish prophet out on the high seas. But instead, it's the great fish that Yahweh appoints to protect him, to deliver him, to vomit him up on... I know it's gross. By vomiting him up on the dry land, do what? Provide the way for Jonah to go to those fish worshipers 
and confront them in their idolatry and call them to repent and believe. And believe in who? Just another God? No, Yahweh who controls everything. Yahweh who is over this great fish. The the fish becomes an envoy on behalf of Yahweh. So who's the greater God now? The fish that can't digest this Jewish prophet? Or Yahweh, who commands the actions of that fish, now commands the Assyrian to repent and believe in him. Do you see how this confrontational application would go in his message? Repent. And let me add to that with the reality of God's supremacy. Well, it's a great fish story that certainly he would use to bolster his message. And by being in the belly of the fish in this moment, Jonah is learning in the womb. He's resting and repenting. But he is also authenticating his role as the spokesperson for Yahweh. Because when it's time, everyone in earshot is going to hear that story. Pretty amazing. That's an amazing appointment. Using a fish to enable the proclamation of Yahweh's superiority over every false god is a total power move on Yahweh's uh, side. Who can ignore Yahweh's messenger now? Once they hear that he was inside of a fish that Yahweh controlled in every way, that's incredible. God even controlled his gag reflex down to the moment that he's going to get up to land and be able to spit him out right onto dry land. Well, this leads us to a third question that we can ask about this sign of Jonah. Our third question relates to this final phrase, three days and three nights. And so now we can get into some of the theologically rich material beyond what we've already seen. And the third question is, why did the miracle take place over three days and three nights? Why three days and three nights? Well, that's certainly a long time, but we can get a sense of why that time matters when we look through the eyes of Israel and the ancient Near East. Now, there's plenty of times where uh, scholars look to the ancient Near East to try and inform them of what we're reading in Scripture, and it's really a fool's errand because so many times what we find is Scripture, which is revealed by Yahweh, needs no accompanying support from the ancient Near East. But there is something really interesting about the cultures uh, as they look at the concept of death and the concept of life. And the concept of three days and three nights is an ultimately important time frame, uh, both in Israel and those surrounding nations. So first off, let's just make the important clarification here. The Hebrew time frame for day uh, can be an approximation, meaning a portion of a day that represents the day, not necessarily the full count of the hours in that day. So three days and three nights might be less hours than if you were to calculate them. Uh, and to some extent, uh, that seems to be what we're reading here. It's an idiomatic expression, and it doesn't necessarily demand an exact accounting of time, but it's closely within the approximate time frame. And so we understand three days and three nights to be more or less within three governing days. But secondly, and this is really how the description is to be understood theologically, three days and three nights are how long it takes to declare somebody officially dead. 
in Israel and in the ancient Near East. In the cultures of the ancient Near East, a person was considered to only pass into the afterlife uh, after the third day. So the time frame of three days is an important reference for a person's death. Later in Israel, and, and I can just ask you to think about this, on what day does Jesus come to Lazarus's tomb in order to raise him from the dead? On the fourth day, right? The idea is, at that point, it would have been obvious that he was dead because, as King James Version says, surely at this point he stinketh, right? Um, but resurrection then, after three days, or on the third day, would be an unmistakable resurrection from the dead because the person has been dead that long. So everyone would have understood that a miracle was taking place in this concept of death. Now, Jonah isn't dead. He is swallowed. He's not chewed up. So it's a symbolic kind of time frame, symbolizing a kind of death. He's been in the belly of the fish for a three-day time span, and he emerged after all hope for his survival was lost by anybody's calendar. You understand? It would have been clear to anyone that heard that he was three days and three nights in the belly of a fish, that Yahweh had done a very unmistakable miracle, an act of power to bring him out of the tomb, as it were, not just a womb of this belly of a fish. And through Yahweh's miracle, it's as if the prophet has overcome a kind of death. To be vomited from the fish after three days and nights is metaphorically to be then victorious over death itself and to be quite literally risen up from this tomb of a womb. Now, the miracle would definitely serve Jonah as he gives more and more powerful witness to the sovereign control of Yahweh over everything. And from that ancient Near East perspective, that would have been in Assyria as well. They would have understood Yahweh's deliverance from death. And you think about those who did repent from the, among the Ninevites. And you, you see a city converted, not to jump ahead, you know the story as we're going to get to. But how beautiful is that thought that any Ninevite who would believe Jonah and repent of his sins will one day experience bodily resurrection from the grave. And it is that very life-giving reality that is embodied with this concept of surviving longer than three days. And those who believe his testimony and repent and believe are confident that they will one day themselves rise by the very power of God. Well, this leads us to our fourth and final question. And this is probably the kicker. This is probably the one burning a hole in verse 17 for you. What does Jesus mean when he references the sign of Jonah in Matthew 12? This is Matthew 12, 39 to 41, and I'm going to ask you to turn there. Let's turn there to Matthew 12, starting in verse 38. And what does Jesus mean when he references the sign of Jonah here? Well, in, in the context, in Matthew 1238, Jesus is asked by the doubting scribes and Pharisees to perform a really obvious miracle that would convince them that he's a true prophet and actually of divine origin. Um, His words were not enough. What he had been doing was not enough. So how does Jesus answer them? Matthew 12, verse 39, an evil and adulterous generation 
craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Well, what's the kind of obvious miracle that Jesus is going to perform before their very eyes? He's going to die. He's going to be buried in a tomb. And on the third day, he's going to raise to new life. His death and his resurrection is the greatest sign of his divine authority that, he, that, that we could ever imagine him producing. It won't be enough for the doubting scribes and Pharisees, of course. And after this, he's going to shift in parables from chapter 13 on. For those who do believe, who have repented, who are looking for him to raise himself to new life and them to new life. But think about this, this sign of Jonah. The three days and three nights in the earth. And Jesus rises victorious because death cannot hold the Son of God. And after his three days in the tomb, he rises to everlasting life in a glorified body. Paul calls him the first fruits of resurrection because he's going to one day lead us in a bodily resurrection in some way like his. And so the sign of Jonah is definitely a reference to the time that Jesus will be in the ground. But the end of the time frame, at the end of that three days mark there, that approximation of three days, three days and three nights, Jesus will rise. And so set in that sign of Jonah is a claim to resurrection, which historically proves to be true, and which then becomes, according to 1 Corinthians 15, that foundation of our faith. These facts are the facts of the gospel by which we're saved. Now, just as the Israelites of Jonah's day didn't listen to their own prophets, in Jesus' day, they weren't listening to him either. The scribes and the Pharisees continued to doubt, and they didn't believe it later after his resurrection. Jesus goes on in Matthew 12 there to say that he is greater than Jonah, and we need to understand him as greater than Jonah in every sense. Isaiah 42 and 49 give the light unto the Gentiles, and his gospel message of his death, his burial in the tomb, and his resurrection on the third day are proclaimed now in every generation as far as the ends of the earth. All pagan Gentiles now, far beyond just one city, have the opportunity to repent and believe. And so the sign of Jonah is a time reference, but it's also the epitome of death, burial, and resurrection. And we see Jesus use this as the sign of his death, his burial, his resurrection within this three-day time frame. And in a much greater way than Jonah, the sign leads to what? For those who believe these facts of the gospel, to his free, unmitigated grace poured out to all who will repent from their idolatry and believe in him for deliverance. 
The sign of Jonah, though, of course, within this context, we're looking at these doubting scribes, doubting Pharisees, or anyone in Israel at Jonah's time that would refuse to believe, and, and perhaps they refused to believe once he finally did get home. You see the opposite of salvation through this sign, don't you? What do you see? You see Jesus' judgment over unbelief. So the sign of Jonah serves as judgment over unbelief. The men of Nineveh, it says in the Matthew 12 passage, are the very ones who, because they repented and believed, on the basis of all they had seen and all they had heard of the word, they are the ones who now will stand up on the last day to accuse those very Pharisees of not believing, especially when something greater than Jonah was staring them in the face, proclaiming the true way of righteousness. And so the Ninevites of Jonah's day had more faith than Jesus' generation of the Jews. And so this sign of Jonah, which is Jesus' greatest miracle, three days dead, and then resurrected to eternal life, becomes a sign of judgment over unbelief. And because of the reality of Christ's supremacy over death itself, the one who is greater than Jonah has the power to condemn unrepentant sinners body and soul into hell. Well, that's the extent of our questions of the text. But I, I, and I do hope that that's helpful for getting a little bit deeper into this whale of a tail, as it were. And we're going to have opportunities to learn more about what uh, Jonah would have preached in Nineveh and see uh, that gracious and compassionate heart of God. But I don't want us to miss a personal thrust, some personal lessons. And so why don't we ask of this text some questions for ourselves? And actually, from this text, let's ask questions of ourselves. I have three here for you. Have you, like Jonah, ever resisted the Lord and been laid so low? Not quite the belly of a great fish. But has he ever penned you into a place of deep humbling? Has he ever forced you to reckon with your sin? And thereby, has he given you an opportunity to repent? And has he even given you some rest at that time? Well, he's certainly done that for me. And if you're a believer, then he's done that for you. Second question would be, how many times has God proven to you and how many times does he need to prove to you that he's powerful to steer all circumstances, take all of nature and use it for his glorious purposes? You see, he has glorious purposes in store through your life that will then be useful in witness to those that don't yet know him. And a third question, I think, is, do you have a testimony of this? Do you have a testimony of being laid low that you can then share with others about how God has restored you to useful service for him? Can you be then a spokesperson of the good news now of the true sign of Jonah, of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? That if you repent from your idolatry and believe, you will be saved in full expectation of bodily resurrection to be with Christ who is risen. 
Do you have a message to share about that? Have you grown in trust because you've been laid low? Has he penned you in so that he could then put you out there to witness to others? If you have experienced his intimate care in a deep and a troubling time, then you have all the reasons that you need to trust in his word today, to serve him today, and to do so with a pure heart. So perhaps two ways to look at that proclamation then of this sign of Jonah is first, testify to the brother or sister that you know is going or has gone wayward like Jonah, just like you have done at some point in your story, perhaps. Testify to them of the grace of God for those who repent and his ability to deliver from the depths. And then second, witness to the pagan world around you. You're surrounded. You have, you have plenty of opportunities to share about this God who saves, this God who delivers, this God who can be powerful to save those who are dying in their sin. And you can be a living testimony of the sign of Jonah. So we circle back to where we began, this great fish story. Is it a true story? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Tell every unbelieving friend that you have with confidence, yes, Jonah really was swallowed by a great fish. That's how it's written, but it's personal to you too. You see, you can live your life today. In fact, we're commanded to do so today and every day as if this story is symbolically and very spiritually true of each of us. And in that sense, I I would humbly consider that we could be people of the sign of Jonah. Can't we be? We see God's sovereign hand of salvation over us through the death and resurrection of this living Christ. And so now we have a powerful message to proclaim to the world that is even now sinking to the depths. And to be people of the sign of Jonah, I think is a high calling, a noble calling, but it is our calling. And God will lead us and deliver us and bring us to that kind of fruitfulness. Be faithful today, especially if as a believer you have seen him do great and mighty works in you because of his great love and because of his desire to get great glory Well, I'm going to invite you to pray with me now. And I have some verses from Psalm 139 that seem particularly fitting, revealing thoughts of our hearts, as we can even imagine Jonah sinking in the depths, being swallowed, preserved, and delivered as a useful prophet. Psalm 139. Let's use it to close in prayer. O Yahweh, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, O Yahweh, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before, and you have put your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? 
If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I lift up the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. Amen.